Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back, or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs, and this is season number six. I'm really excited today, folks, to be talking with Dr. Louise Burke. Louise is an absolute legend in the performance nutrition space. Dr. Burke was the head of sports nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sport throughout its existence from 1990 to 2018, and in 2018 was appointed chief of the AIS Nutrition Strategy. Burke has held the position of team dietitian for the Australian Olympic teams for the 96 Atlanta Olympics, 2000 Sydney, 2004 Athens, 2008 Beijing, and 2012 London Games, and has contributed countless books and research papers on sport nutrition. In this episode, Louise and I discuss how she first got interested in performance nutrition, the power of persistence, and the biggest challenges Louise faced in her early career work with athletes. We'll also talk about the cost of chronic low-carb fueling in elite athletes as well as the potential role of ketone ester supplements for endurance performance. We chat about iron metabolism, how low and high carb fueling impacts iron levels, as well as the time of day of supplementation. We'll also discuss female-specific performance nutrition and training. Do the recommendations fit? We'll touch on collecting data, how much is enough, how much is too much? And of course, Louise rounds things out with her one single piece of advice for every sport nutrition practitioner. Before we get started, a quick shout out to Jameson who are sponsoring today's show. Fatigue and low energy can keep us from performing our best, whether it's on the field, at the office, or even with your family. Keeping your body and mind in tip-top shape is important for your overall health and wellness. You'll hear evidence-based strategies in today's episode from Louise, all about carbohydrate periodization for endurance, how your nutrition impacts iron stores, and insights on performance nutrition for female athletes. Jameson offers multiple solutions to support yourself and keep your energy levels high. I'm a big fan of Jameson's Vitamin B12. It offers a gradual high-potency release of Vitamin B12 throughout the day. It's formulated with methylcobalamin, a form of B12 that allows for faster absorption as well as having a time-release technology, meaning you'll get a steady dose of B12 to keep you energized throughout the day. Many factors contribute to low vitamin B12 levels such as diet, age, activity, digestion, absorption issues, medication use, and more. That's where supplements can play a key strategy. For listeners of today's podcast, you can go to jamesonvitamins.com, use the promo code BUBS to claim 10% off your order. That's jamesonvitamins.com, use the promo code BUBS to claim 10% off your next order. All right, let's get rolling. My conversation with Dr. Louise Burke. Louise, really appreciate you uh, carving out some time today to join us. Pleased to be here. Well, I'm excited to dive into, you know, a lot of your fantastic work over the years and to try to glean some of the insights and wisdom from you. But I think before we even go there, it'd be great to go back to the start. You know, what got you interested in, in sports nutrition and in, to pursue this field? Well, complete serendipity. I um, sometimes think that most of my career has been accidental and it's um, been brought about by the generosity of others. And so when I did um, high school, I had no idea what I wanted to be and I didn't know what I wanted to study at, at um, university. I thought I might do medicine and then I just couldn't see myself being a doctor. So I started a science degree and picked up these nutrition subjects. I didn't realise you could 
studying nutrition and I certainly didn't know what a, a dietitian was. But the course that I chose brought me at the end of it out as a dietitian. And so I was really enjoying the, the, um, the subject, but sort of still feeling that it was um, fun, but I couldn't sort of see that spark. Mm-hmm. And then one day, it was the university I went to was quite small and the dietetic course was very small. And our lecturer, our chief lecturer, invited us home for dinner. And he was just eating lettuce and cheese. And all the rest of us were diving into his wife's wonderful cooking. And I, <laughs> I commented on what, you know, what's what's wrong with the food? And he said, Oh, I'm I'm um, doing a marathon next weekend. And these Scandinavian scientists have just discovered that if you deplete muscle glycogen and then you replace it, you can supercompensate and, you know, then I won't hit the wall in the marathon. And it was like a light bulb went on for me. That yeah. um, And so I bullied him into letting me drop one of the dietetic subjects and just do a, pers- a course of sort of personal study with him, pick his mm-hmm. brains about things. Because so, you know, there wasn't really a thing as sports nutrition and these studies that were coming out from Scandinavia were, you know, really quite new. And uh, so, of course, then I wanted to think about how could I apply it. And the thing that mattered to me most in the world, my, my huge passion was for an Australian rules football team, which was completely hopeless. Um, <laughs> the the um, Australian Football League's been going for 125 years, and my Incredible. team has won. Yeah, my team has won once. Oh no! <laughs> so, What's your team? <laughs> St Kilda. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I wrote to the St Kilda Football Club. I, actually, I wrote to the best player in the football club, who was a bit like a David Beckham, if you can mm-hmm. imagine David Beckham playing for a hopeless team. For sure. And uh, so I wrote to him and I said, look, this is the, this is the magic ingredient. This is what the Saints need to, um, to win that premiership play. They need to be doing the right thing nutrition-wise. And look, I look back now and I think that player, Trevor Barker, must have been getting thousands of letters a week from girls. Sure. But he read mine, he read mine, and he gave it to the club doctor. And the club doctor called me and said, you know what, I'd like to come down and do some stuff at the club. So like, how, how accidental and how Incredible. generous is that? And so you know, so many things happened like that. Then I started bullying the Australian Institute of Sport, which had just been set up, to say you haven't got nutrition on your program. You've got physiologists who do the nutrition, but you need a nutrition specialist. And mm-hmm. eventually in, in 1990, they um, got tired of me whinging about it, I suppose, and <laughs> I got to start the department there. So, I mean, there's so many things that I look back now and I think, gosh, I was so lucky that someone gave me a chance and took me seriously. Even when I was not in a position to be taken that seriously, I look back on that football club experience and think, boy, I was not ready for that. But... Um, I was able to make up a lot of it as I went along and and now, you know, it's been um, incredible to see how sports nutrition in Australia and in the world has suddenly shaped into a career path and a, a proper science and recognition of the, the practical side of things. And, you know, every day I just think, boy, I was so lucky to choose a job where every day is just so much fun. And, you know, it's like they say, you know, find a job that doesn't feel like a job and you'll never work a day in your life so that's been my experience absolutely well it sounds like that nice combination of passion and determination and and being sort of at the right place at the right time has has kicked a lot of that off and if we think back of that period when you're helping younger athletes or the start of your career or in your initial research you know what are some of the bigger challenges that you remember facing with you know again 
first time through helping athletes or as you're starting your, your research career? Yeah, I think the starting point that was challenging was that people thought of it in very, very brief ways. So that if you ate the right food before you did your competition, so before the race, before the match, that right combination of foods with your lucky knife and fork, that was suddenly going to turn you into the champion, but nothing else that you did during the week mattered. Gotcha. And so it, it was it was first of all starting to get people putting the clues together that, you know, everyday nutrition, the whole way that you organise your meal plans contributes to performance. But then the next step was to try and get people thinking it needs to be personalised and periodised. It's not like, oh, let's find the perfect diet for the athlete and then repeat. You know, just yeah. everybody does everybody does the same thing and you just do it from day to day to day. So um, getting people to um, sort of appreciate the complexity and the nuances has been challenging and I think probably um, more recently the challenge has been letting the truth and the science and the evidence base be heard amongst all the nonsense because you know we live in a world of scienceiness rather than than science these days mm -hmm. we've got so much of our um, opinion about what we should be doing coming from just that opinion from influences rather than evidence base and so it's sometimes difficult to get your voice listened to against all the other information. Yeah, it is an interesting time, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, it's, you know, having done my undergrad in the late 90s and being interested in nutrition, and it was really tough to find much of anything to, to dive into, to see, as you mentioned, the explosion. And you see people now so interested in nutrition, which is a great thing. But then, like you're mentioning, obviously, then all of a sudden, um, everybody's anecdote is how we should do it. And it's tough to hear the signal through all the noise. And so if we talk about that sort of evidence-based practice, obviously we have what's in the white papers, but we also have, you know, the, the practitioner's experience and even the experience of the, of the patient client athlete, you know, can you talk a bit about, you know, how, let's say a practitioner or an athlete can start having more of a scientific mindset, you know, what does that really mean? Yeah. And look, I think you said something really important and, and it's something that I have on often on the opening slide of a lot of my presentations that, I summed up, signed up to be a sports scientist and I recognised that that was going to be something that had an evidence base, but not everything that I would practise needed to be run through a randomised controlled trial, you know, because the complexity of when you're working with an athlete at the coalface of high-performance sport is, you know, it is so nuanced and mm -hmm. no one's going to do that study that says, um, if I take bicarb plus creatine plus caffeine plus beetroot juice over two time trials an hour apart in this environment when I've already done this this morning, no one's going to do that sort of very, very complicated real-world scenario that athletes are making decisions about. But if there's enough bigger evidence, then your expertise comes from the insights and the experience and the ability to work with athletes and see what appears to work for the best of them. So you, you know, you're interpolating all the time. Try not to extrapolate too far outside the knowledge, but you certainly need to say that there's room for insight and experience. So that's what I call sports science. But as I said, we're living in this world of scienceiness where so much of it's based on opinion. And I I coined the term scienceiness because I stole the idea from Stephen Colbert, who it's came a great up. Term. Yeah, <laughs> nice. but, he, no, but he came up 20 years ago. He came up with the term truthiness. 
Mm-hmm. And his definition of truth was ahead of his was, time. Yeah, it was ahead of his time. He's so ahead of his time in so many ways still. But you know, his definition was if you feel it in your gut, you must be right. And so, <laughs> nice. um, yeah, and so I apply that to sports science eaters. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do with athletes is say to them, look, here's where we've got really good information. We've got good science. We've got studies, particularly studies that are applicable to the high-performance athlete done in the field conditions or with high-level performers so that some of the noise and messiness is taken out of the, the study so that I can be feel more confident that it applies to the people that I'm working with. But then it's a matter of, you know, keeping very good information about how the athlete's responding to things and spending um, time to develop that relationship with the athlete. So, yes, you can get a lot of data from all these wearables and tech and things these days, and that's all useful, but it's a lot of noise as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the best insights come from that relationship you have with the athlete. And I've been lucky enough in my life, um, particularly when I was working at the AIS, to have time with athletes where you did develop relationships. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, I joke that um, I loved working with the race walkers because I could run at their walking speed. <laughs> keep and, up, right? <laughs> yeah, keep. And so I could go out on all these training sessions and I would see things happen. So rather than having them come into my office on their best behaviour and tell me about things in a in a formal way as you might do a sort of that sort of official consult, mm-hmm. I could actually get insights into what was happening. I could also learn a little bit about what that what made that person tick. So when you're thinking about ways to change behaviour or to educate or to just, you know, to relate to them at a level that that is meaningful and, and working as a team, that, that hanging out time was really useful for developing relationships, not just with the athletes, but coaches. I mean, <coughs> coaches are just incredible people a lot of the time because they're the ones that have that art. Yeah. They have, they have those insights and sometimes they know things before you do and the role of a scientist is just to confirm it. But, you know, sometimes just being able to hang out with the athletes and coaches gives you that little spark of an idea that you might go back and play around with and put it into sort of a more science-based investigative context Mm -hmm. and then sort of refine it and come back. I mean, not everything that athletes and coaches do is right. I mean, there's lots of times you look at those anecdotes and they're absolutely nonsense. But (laughs) every every now and again, there's just a kernel of truth. And uh, the, the number of times that... I've been proved wrong. I mean, one one anecdote I can remember is um, watching athletes and their caffeine use. And so in the 1990s, you know, we thought we knew everything about caffeine. We've got Mm -hmm. all these millions of studies, very well done by very good scientists, and they're giving six to nine milligrams per kg body mass an hour before exercise, and we're waiting for the rise in free fatty acid levels, which is going to change metabolism and delay fatigue by sparing glycogen and it's all really well documented and I can remember my colleague Dave Martin coming back from a cycling race and saying you won't believe this but I'm at the feed zone just before you know the the last sort of feed zone it's about two-thirds of the way in the race and all the soigneurs are throwing away the sports drink and they're handing out flat coke how crazy is that? Isn't that amazing how marketing for coke is so powerful that you take all these scientific typically based sports strings and you'd throw them out and we laughed ourselves silly saying 
why would you do that? You know, the amount of caffeine that you're getting in that Coke is so small mm-hmm. compared to the six milligram doses. And it's at the wrong part of the race. You know, there's not enough time for changing metabolism and stuff. And we we were so um, amused by this. We thought, look, let's just do the study to show how stupid athletes are <laughs> and get them back on the right. So, you know, yeah. we did the study where we compared these large doses of caffeine taken an hour before the event and compared it with the, the late feeding of a small amount of caffeine as, as was provided by the, the Coke. And, hey, presto, we found it was just as effective. And the other funny part is that, you know, if you're thinking about it, if you're thinking about it in your own life, like you don't get up in the morning and have six cups of coffee and say, tick, there's my caffeine dose for the day. Mm-hmm. You spread it out so that as you're getting a little bit tired with whatever duty that you're doing, whether it's marking exams or, um, you know, teaching or whatever it is, you wait and you have a cup of coffee or you have some sort of a a caffeine dose and within an instant you're feeling better and it doesn't it's not you know people think of it as some nasty stimulant well really what it's doing is only allowing you not to turn into the hulk but to just keep doing what you do for longer before you get tired and so we'd all had that personal experience of the way that we used caffeine in our lives but we hadn't thought about that applying to sport just the same way and that's what athletes were basically doing so that's what I'm sort of saying that you know, sometimes you come across these truths in a really accidental way and you find out that um, you know, athletes and coaches got to that information before you did. Yeah, it's interesting when those collection of anecdotes become you know, dozens of riders or dozens of coaches and that's when you start to think, wait a minute, what's something going on here? And so really yeah. interesting to see that, that come about. And I definitely want to touch on the tech side and the monitoring in a minute. But before that, I think, a nice segue, you know, you talk about race walkers, we're talking about different strategies that get a lot of airtime and, and social media, obviously, higher fat diets for endurance being one of them. This concept of tapping into this unlimited reserve of, of fuel sounds tremendous, you know, hey, why not if we can, if we can do it. And obviously, it's not so straightforward. And you've done a lot of work in this area. So can you, you know, walk us through some of the work you've done in race walkers and, and, and what you yeah. found? Yeah, so um, there's two aspects. There's the theme of what we were studying, but there's also the way that we studied it. And this also sort of became an accidental um, way of working. But now looking back, I realised the value in that a lot of the studies that we now do, we embed into training camps. So we bring a group of athletes in, we talk to them about what's of interest to them, you know, what sort of things is their sport saying might be useful to performance. I mean, sometimes we bring them an idea and say, what do you think about this? But it's a collaboration with the athletes. And about the time that we started um, our Supernova series around 2015, there was a lot of renewed interest in the keto diet. And when you get to be as old as I am, you've seen things come in cycles. So I'd Mm -hmm. seen it come through in the 1980s and I'd seen it come through again towards the sort of the end of the 1990s but then suddenly there it is back in the news again being pushed by social media and there's no new studies to say that it works but there's this really sort of compelling hypothesis that if you can um, restrict carbohydrate and eat very high fat diets then you'll retool your muscles to be able to use fat as a fuel and you've got bucket loads of it on board compared to the finite reserves of carbohydrate so hmm. it would be a great strategy to be able to um, 
improve endurance performance. And we we tried some studies before back in, in round two of the interest in high-fat diets and hadn't been able to make it work. But we, when you start hearing all these anecdotes and athletes are really excited, you have to say to yourself, well, you've got to listen to, you know, maybe there is something there we missed. Maybe, you know, something... Something like the caffeine, different. right? Yeah. It could be something yeah, there that exactly. we... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so when we talked to the race walkers, they were really interested in it. And one of the things about race walking is that, that it has a 50K or it used to have a 50K event on the Olympic program. And the world record, that's three hours, um, 32. So it's a, an event which is sort of at that crossover point where fat could be useful as a fuel so- source. Um, and so we thought if there's any going to be an event where this might be useful to be become more reliant on fat, that would be the one. So when we talked to the um, race walkers about it, they were really interested. And we set up our first studies um, having a, a three-week experience of intensified training these were world-class athletes and we got them to choose which of the dietary strategy they thought might be best for them and they had to choose between carbs 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 all the time Mm -hmm. the keto with no carbs or very little carbs Mm -hmm. and then a periodized carb approach where they ended up consuming the same amount of carbohydrates in the high carb diet but it was periodized over the week so some sessions were done with low carbohydrate availability so low glycogen some were done fasted and others were done with very high um, carbohydrate intakes to to sort of match the session with its goal and use nutrition to amplify it so we set about doing that and it was interesting that when we asked the athletes to choose which ones which diet they wanted to be on the better athletes wanted to try the keto diet because they're always looking for you know some little thing that's the edge, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, what was really interesting about this study is that, you know, you, you um, do your ethics application and you tell the ethics committee that you're going to keep all the results anonymous, you know, so that people can't um, have their results identified later. Mm-hmm. And then you find when you're working with elite athletes, they're all blogging and... They're <laughs> telling everyone. <laughs> insta- they're telling everyone everything. But also all their results are in the public domain because they mm. compete in races. And, in fact, in our study... We had them do real life races pre and post the intervention so that we could measure performance as well as possible. And so one of the things that happened with our study was that we sh- we saw that the um, keto diet actually impaired performance of the 10,000 metre races that they were doing. But a couple of weeks later, when those athletes went on and raced in a national championship many of them broke their national records or did PBs and did incredibly well and got a lot of attention for it. So that led to our next study because people were starting to say, well, maybe the keto diet's not good for higher intensity endurance performance, but maybe it's a little bit bit like altitude training where if you do it, you impair your performance. Yeah, yeah, you, you impair your performance during the period that you're on it, but then when you go back to your higher carbohydrate diet, you've got this legacy that the keto diets left you. So that then formed the basis of of study two, and we were able to find that there was no legacy, that anything that we'd seen in terms of these improvements in performance were all a training camp effect. And that's one of the reasons why it's uh, our studies have become easy to recruit for or you know easier to recruit for than most studies because there's such a... Um, a placebo effect around the study. People know that if you come and you hang out with us for 
five mm. weeks and train your butt off against other very good athletes that you'll improve your performance. You're going to get better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. whatever the intervention is. And we just have to control it so that we can distinguish how much of the improvement might be the intervention and how much might be the, um, the training camp. Hey, friends. I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick announcement. It's Cyber Monday and we've got a big discount for you. 50% off the cost of all athlete performance nutrition courses. That's right, you can save 50% off the football performance nutrition, basketball performance nutrition, and foundations in performance nutrition courses by using the promo code CYBERMONDAY before midnight tonight. Awesome, let's get back to the conversation with Louise Burke. Yeah, and it was interesting because you showed, I mean, obviously we often hear this idea that adaptation requires a long time, and is it what, five or six days, as little as that, that you were seeing the elite yeah. athletes were able to respond to that, that higher fat, low carb diet? Yeah, so um, that was sort of study four then when we wanted to see what the time course. Yeah, so um, we got a lot of criticism for doing our study, our first studies over the, the three, three and a half weeks because we got told, you know, we were doing it deliberately because it takes longer than that to adapt. And I'm perfectly capable of um, admitting that there may be other things about the keto diet that require longer term adaptation. Mm-hmm. But if the one that you're looking for is just retooling your muscle to be better able to burn fat as a fuel that's a very short-lived thing it takes five or six days to do and we'd shown that two decades before that because our version of um, the high fat diet in the 1990s when we did five years of studying of that had um, shown us that it is a very quick um, effect five or six days but the downside of that is once you've adapted you've also reduced your capacity to oxidize carbohydrate as a fuel source. So mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons that we you know, feel that the keto diet isn't suitable for athletes that are doing higher intensity endurance events and or need, and whether that's the whole of the event or whether it's critical pieces during the event, you know, you've got to think to yourself whether if you make yourself better able to burn fat, that could be useful for some events, but not having that top gear is the downside and you've got to sort of weigh up whether that's a, um, a sacrifice that you're willing to make. So that's, it's very much about understanding what your event is. And, yeah, and that seems an important yeah. point when we talk about the general population, because they're not really racing or competing. And so the idea that, you know, sounds obvious, but like you're saying, you know, the athlete's goal is to win the race. I mean, we're, the goal mm. is to win the medals. And so we need to, we can't sacrifice that top gear in competition. Whereas you feel like sometimes potentially the general public, just don't, okay. difficult for them to appreciate that, isn't it? When they're not pushing well, at that level. Yeah, but also the, um, like so much of what we think about things, you know, sometimes when you hear the general version of what an endurance sport is, everyone says, oh, it's, you know, exercise between 60 and 80% of VO2 max. It's in the fat burning zone. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's that, that, that sort of typecasting of, of exercise fails to understand that when Elliot Kipchoge is running his two-hour marathon, he's moving at yeah. 90% of VO2 yeah. max. Like these people are incredible. The, uh, you know, sometimes I, when I go and do my own little marathons, um, particularly the big city ones, there's um, some shoe companies that will bring up a, a truck to the race and on the back of the truck they have a, a treadmill with a harness and they invite people to get onto the treadmill and see how long they can last at the pace that the yeah. elite marathon runners. And, wow. and people can last, 
people can last 40 seconds. That's, you know, people just don't realise yeah. um, both the absolute and relative speeds that these guys are moving at. They are incredible. So, you know, the, the, the couch potatoes view of what elite sport is often doesn't match up with the realities of what it is. That's a great way to find out is that that, that the treadmill <laughs> test is definitely one that will do it for you pretty quickly. Uh, now, Louise, what about the role of, you know, ketone ester supplements? Because that's been something that's been proposed as well. Maybe we can just exogenously provide ketones and that might then lead to a performance benefit. You've done some work uh, in this area as well. Yeah. So there's um, two reasons to sort of support that work. And one was the fact, again, that elite athletes were using it and they were wanting to get some advice over, you know, whether it was actually beneficial because they're quite expensive. So, you know, you've got to think about whether you've got the resources to um, commit to that. But the other side of it was just the hypothetical view of, well, if the keto diet's really hard to achieve because it is quite difficult to choose the right foods to achieve it, but if it is one of those things that once you're on it, you're committed to it and it's difficult to, like you, when you're in ketosis, you need to stay in ketosis. So the idea of taking the supplements appealed to me because you could then periodise that over a training block or over a week. You know, you could choose a session that you might want to try and improve fat burning and restrict carbohydrate or provide ketones for another reason. And it's just a matter of taking that supplement just prior to that session. And then once it's over, it's over and you can move on to the, the next nutritional strategy. So the fact that you could have um, the ability to integrate different nutritional approaches into a training program and if the keto um, aspect of it was useful, being able to sort of turn it on and off appealed to me. So mm-hmm. um, we've done several studies with it. And again, we haven't been able to show that it improves performance. Um, there's a very funny literature on the ketone supplements. Um, there's only two studies that have shown benefits. And even with the second study, the same people went and tried it again and didn't find the same benefits. And some of the studies have shown impairments. Sometimes it's metabolically. Sometimes it's the gastrointestinal side effects from taking the particular ketone ester. So it's a pretty tricky thing to um, to work with. We're um, about to embark on a new study looking at it as a recovery agent, whether there's something about having, having elevated ketone levels that... Um, may assist with recovery. So I'm always trying to really remain open-minded about things. And it really um, kind of annoys me, the whole social media thing. Every time we do a study, if it <laughs> yeah. doesn't show the benefit, uh, it's like I, I get criticised. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking, I don't know anybody that's done as much um, investigation of high-fat diets. I have really tried to make them work because why wouldn't you look for a strategy that could help an athlete? Well, you know, it's... Um, it's to yeah. all our benefits if we can find something. I don't particularly care if any benefit comes from beetroot juice or ketone esters. If the benefit's there, I'm all for trying to help the athlete learn about that. So it's a bit annoying when you, you, you know, you spend so much time and effort and money to and cooperation with the athletes to try and get inside what might be happening. And sometimes we find that it, there's benefits, sometimes we don't. And it's just it is what it is. Yeah, I suppose for the uh, practitioner, the ketone esters are tricky because the cost is quite high. And if the benefits really equivocal or not there, it becomes a question of, of, of just the budget, doesn't it, for the athlete? And Well, the other thing is the risk analysis on that one, too, is that there are ways in which it can be detrimental. The, the ketone gotcha. esters that 
Well, the ketone, elevated ketone bodies are really interesting metabolically. And my tiny little brain can't even work out all the different ways in which they change various aspects of metabolism. And that's both fuel utilisation, they alter your ability to burn fat, to burn carbohydrate, but there's also changes in the acid-base balance and all sorts of things going on. And it's mm -hmm. such a tricky thing. And then, of course, when you're taking them, there's a difference between the period where the ketone ester levels have made your ketone bodies high and then as they start to, um, to decline again. So there's so many moving parts to the use of a ketone ester and knowing that if you get it wrong, there's a detriment. It's not like you just, oh, well, you wasted your money. It could yeah, be, now we're oh, no. Potential risk. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why I think you have to be so careful. Yeah, 100%. And it's interesting you talk about beetroots. I remember talking with Stu Phillips saying, you know, him saying he, he'd never predicted that a beetroot would be something that would be a performance aid for, for athletes. And so back to that idea of, be, you know, investigating everything. And Louise, if we talk about carbohydrate periodization, you know, we've obviously this all or nothing approach doesn't appear to be very beneficial for endurance athletes with going lower carb, higher fat. And so for, again, for a practitioner and athlete, how do you sort of describe that idea of periodizing carbohydrate to be able to get some potential beneficial adaptations from some of those low periods, but also fueling up to be able to compete? Yeah, so it's a matter of, I think, starting with each training session and saying to yourself, what is the goal of that session physiologically? Mm -hmm. And sometimes coaches know that different sessions together seem to work or structuring these different sessions within a week within a month whatever it is seems to work but if you go and have a look at the concept of behind why it might work then you can think about the way to amplify the response through nutrition and sometimes it's about having a better fuel environment so that the quality of the training session is maximized and it might be also practicing something you're doing in a competition thing so you're training the behavior of being able to do it you're training your gut to be able to absorb nutrients, etc. But other sessions, it might be all about providing a, an environment where you've deprived your body of nutrients or you've created this stressful environment that promotes adaptation. And so that's why we do lots of things. And you know, we go to altitude to try and promote the, the erythropoiesis, the, the um, building of new red blood cells in response to the absence of the oxygen that we would normally have that sort of stimulates that. And so being able to do training in a low glycogen environment stimulates a different response to an exercise session than doing it with high glycogen stores. So putting bits and pieces of different kinds of sessions together is the art of the coach. And the dietitian can help with that to say, all right, well, let's think of the sessions where this kind of approach to fueling might help. It's also about recovery as well. It's all about mm -hmm. so many different aspects of, of, of nutrition. So um, we've done a few studies where we've been able to show that that sort of more clever approach to um, periodizing the carbohydrate around the, the goal of the session can lead the athlete to get a better performance outcome from that same training block. But interestingly, um, most of the studies that have shown that and the ones that we've done that show, show it have been done with lesser caliber athletes, like lower tier athletes, not the very elite. Mm -hmm. And not that there's a lot of studies on the elite athletes, but the two that we've done 
and some others from um, a Danish group have also shown the same thing that the benefits um, don't seem to translate so easily into a performance improvement with elite athletes. And it might be because they're just closer to their ceiling. And so measuring less room. To... Yeah, yeah. It might be there, but we just can't measure it because we, uh, you know, the precision of measurement of performance is a bit tricky. But the other thing it could be is that maybe some attributes of the athlete or the way they train already created. And I, I remember thinking with our, um, our first supernova study and we were doing the periodization of the carbohydrate and we wanted to have a low glycogen session in the afternoon. And so we, we did have low carbohydrate intake after the morning session for our periodized group. But the athletes were doing a 40K session in the morning and a 10K session in the afternoon. Wow. And I'm thinking that if you've walked 40K or run 40K in the morning, it doesn't matter what you eat between that and the afternoon session, that second session is going to have low glycogen. And so maybe one of the reasons that athletes train with such high volumes and intensity is that they've learned through experience that that's important to the adaptations. And maybe what that volume and intensity of training was doing was emptying glycogen. And so maybe what elite athletes, so I can't do 40K and a recreational athlete can't do 40K without needing a week off <laughs> yeah, for sure. maybe, so that maybe what elite athletes do through that experience and through their genetics is that they learn the patterns that modulate carbohydrate without having to do it with diet so yeah. maybe what the sort of lesser athletes doing by periodizing their carbohydrate is achieving something elite athletes will already do and maybe for elite athletes well you know it, i think it could just tweak it a little bit more or maybe it's it's important for them say if they're coming back from injury or it's the beginning of the season and they can't do the 40ks to create the glycogen depletion in the first place maybe that's when nutrition could take over a bit more of the role of changing glycogen levels um, that would allow them to get some different um, training adaptation that they would normally get through just the volume and intensity factor that's that's really fascinating that yeah the wisdom of even the coach maybe over the years not even realizing that that glycogen depletion is one of the factors of that like you mentioned that intense 40k followed by the mm. 10k and the elite athletes just getting that via the actual training itself versus well, the recreational if we can yeah. manipulate diet we actually can do a little bit of what we can't do physically with 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 our nutrition i i was at an isc um conference once and i was presenting on this um this idea and we had a dinner that night and Frank Shorter got to sit on our table. So Frank Shorter was an elite marathon runner for the audience who might not know this, who won the um, 1972 marathon medal at the Olympics. Amazing. And uh, yeah, so he, we were sitting with him for dinner. He's a very smart man. He's a lawyer. And um, someone said to him, oh, you know, what did you think of the presentations today? And he said, oh, yeah, he said, um, that one about the carbs. He said, I knew that. He said, we used to go out and run 20 miles on Sunday mornings and you did your, th your three miles or five miles in the afternoon. And it was really important to do that one in the afternoon. Um, he said, the coaches just knew it. We, we just knew that there was something special about backing up after a very depleting effort 
with a, a shorter session. And so it's you know it's amazing how long this information has been mm-hmm. practiced without perhaps knowing why it works. And you know, as mechanisms. Now, yeah, mechanisms. The scientists now can take the muscle biopsy and measure all the the signaling pathways and the changes in all these you know clever factors in the muscle. And so they can explain to to Frank Shorter why it was working. But his coach got there before him. <laughs> And Louise, if we shift the focus here a little bit to iron metabolism, because it ties into this acute and chronic, you know, periodization of, of carbohydrates or restriction, you know, how does iron obviously really important for red blood cell formation, oxygen, immunity, you know, something that everyone, obviously athletes need to have significant stores of, how is that being impacted then iron metabolism by these periods of low acute periods of, or chronic periods of restriction of carbohydrates? Great question, and it's been an, another output from our um, our Supernova series. So when we do these big training camps and we collect the information, you know, it's a big deal and it costs a lot of money and the athletes are really giving us a lot of time. So we often think, well, our main interest is in performance, but what else could we be looking at at the same time to get more value and more information to warrant the amount of effort everybody's putting into this? Mm-hmm. And we started to think about, well, what's the health implications or what are the implications to other body systems other than the muscle and performance if you deprive it of carbohydrate? Because we know that the immune system is really dependent on carbohydrate. And we know that in response to doing exercise with low glycogen levels, there's a much greater increase in some of the interleukins that are produced by the muscle during exercise. And so we now need to think about the muscle is not just being the thing that propels us to move, but it's an organ that produces chemicals that sends messages all around the body. And that's one of the reasons why exercise is so good for health Yeah, because these little messenger things that are produced by the muscle when it's exercising go around and they tell the liver and they tell the bones and they tell a whole lot of other organs some good things to do. But we found that, or other people have found before us that, when you do exercise with low glycogen, that some of the interleukins that are produced and send messengers around have a pro-inflammatory response and have um, sort of impairing effects on some body systems rather than helpful ones. Mm -hmm. And so one of the pathways involves hepcidin, which is um, a, a, a special protein that's produced and has an effect on iron metabolism. It reduces our body's absorption of iron and it reduces our ability to recycle iron that's been released when you're crunching up red blood cells and and damaging them. And it's a very important um, um, factor because there's no way for us to get rid of iron apart from bleeding if we get too much of it. Donating yeah, blood. So, yeah. so our bodies have got this ability to try and protect us from times when it's not good to be having more iron by producing this hepcidin and it reduces our capacity to absorb iron and it gets rid of some of the iron that we're breaking down by not letting it be recycled. And what we found is that when we exercise with the low glycogen, with the ketogenic diets, there was a much greater response of the production of the interleukin-6, which is the messenger um, cytokine, and it increased the levels of hepcidin, which we can't see what would have happened 10 weeks down the road if we kept doing it. But we would suggest that that would have an effect to reduce iron status. It would... um, 
it reduce your capacity to be able to use and in, um, absorb the iron that you're consuming in your diet. So, you know, we've started to say, look, some of the outputs from our studies have been to question whether there's aspects of changing diet so dramatically have bigger effects on body systems that we hadn't thought about. When we're just focusing on what happens to performance and fueling, maybe we're missing out on some of the bigger picture of what else in our body is getting a secondary effect from this that we might need to think about. Definitely seems important, obviously, for endurance athletes, but female athletes, obviously, as well, in terms of maintaining iron status. I mean, low energy availability and iron metabolism, is this all sort of fitting into that picture of we really need to be able to you know, assess yeah, and, and fuel our yeah. athletes uh, adequately because this is obviously a really significant trickle-down effect because we're going to really start to compromise athlete health, which then the recovery, the performance side is going to suffer as well. Yeah, or it's to think about things a bit differently. So, I mean, I'm never black and white and saying no one should ever be on a keto diet, for example, but if sure. there is an effect of the ketogenic diet on iron metabolism, well, then maybe this, the view might be that, if there is some benefit to being keto for your event or your lifestyle or whatever, then that means that you've got to think about the other parts that go with that. And it might mean that you have to be more careful of iron. It might be that you need to have iron studies done more frequently just to make sure that your iron status remains good, or you have to make sure that of the protein and, and fat-rich foods that you consume, that you need to have some good iron-rich sources in there. Because one of the other things about the keto diet is once you remove all the cereal products from people's diet, you remove one of the major sources of iron. Most people think of iron coming from red meat, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But in, in generally, the in the Western diet, cereals like fortified breakfast cereals and some of our whole grain cereals are a really significant source of the iron that we consume. So when you take those out of the diet, you've suddenly changed its iron content. And mm -hmm. if you've made iron harder to absorb or to recycle, then maybe that, you know, one of the things that you need to think of on the keto diet is just being more mindful of what might be happening with your iron. And in regards to iron in general, with, with hepcidin activity, are there changes throughout the day? Is it, you know, higher in the, in the morning, yeah. lower in the afternoon? Is that also yeah. something to consider? Look, hepcidin is a, a really interesting hormone and we're just learning more about it now. Um, I've got a fantastic postdoc in my group, um, Alana McKay, and she's come from a PhD with Pete Peeling, who's one of the world experts on that, and she's really making her own name in this area. So we're you know, working together and, and finding that a lot of the things that I'm interested in about carbohydrate and performance then have a relationship with her expertise in, in iron and we're looking at things such as does the effect of being male or female of sex interfere or have an effect on hepcidin levels? Do um, training sessions, because we know that the hepcidin rises post-exercise, but does that mean that if you're thinking about when you're having iron in your diet or an iron supplement, if you need to take it, how should you time your intake of your either meal or your supplement form of iron in relationship to the sessions of exercise that you're doing so that you try and consume the iron at a time when hepcidin's lower so that you don't lose some of the impact of the iron that you're consuming. And it's Keep a really bioavailability up. Yes, the bioavailability. So it's a really tricky thing when you think of all the factors that might be influencing yeah, hepcidin, sure. the, you know, whether it's the diurnal variation, whether it's the effect of training, 
um, whether it's the effect of glycogen. So um, we're gradually trying to put the pieces together to say this looks like um, good times, this looks like less helpful times to eat iron, or this is the way that you could try and manage both your eating and your training if, um, if iron is something that's always precarious for you, here's ways in which you could try and manage it to get the best out of the iron that you're eating. Tremendous. And if we, if we pivot here a little bit, Louise, I've got uh, three daughters at home starting to play sport. And I look at the arc of research in, in women's sport, especially exercise and sport, sport nutrition. You know, curious your thoughts to see where things have been in terms of the research specifically to female athletes and kind of where things are, are starting to trend now. I'm glad you asked me that question because it gives me a chance to confess that I have been a culprit of one of the terrible things that has happened in sports science, and that is focusing on male athletes all the time to the detriment of doing research with females. And look, I've been, last decade, I've been sort of seeing these articles talking about the lack of women in sports science. Mm -hmm. And I, I would think, oh, yeah, they're talking about the lack of scientists who are women. And it wasn't until I sort of actually read the articles more deeply that I suddenly realised that they were talking about the lack of studies done with female participants. And I thought, oh, I'll go and have a look and see what I've done. And so I looked up all the studies that I'd done that had a performance outcome in it and looked at how many I'd done that were just men only, some that I'd done that were female only, and some that I'd done which were males and females. Mm -hmm. And I found that I was one of the problems, not one of the um, solutions <laughs> to this. But most of my studies have been done with men. Mm -hmm. And, look, I started to examine the reason for why this might be because, if you know, I'm a nice person. I like to do the right thing. So if mm -hmm. I'm not doing a good job, you know, why is that? And I sort of started to think, well, women are so darn complex to work with because the hormonal patterns around the menstrual cycle and the fact that, you know, some females might be on oral contraceptives, some females might be amenorrheic. And there's a lot of variables got, oh, in yeah, the mix, right? There's so many variables. And sometimes it's just like, oh, why do I want to add all that complexity to what I'm doing? Let's just get men because they just stay the same. Mm -hmm. And it's also not just that they're difficult to work with from the idea of the hormonal variability. To be honest, sometimes it's that females are less available. You know, sometimes when you're working with elite athletes, men's sport gets more support. So mm -hmm. men, you know, they could be full-time athletes and they've got plenty of um, opportunity to, to be parts of studies. And sometimes, you know, females might like to be, but, you know, they're already working full-time or studying and they're doing their sport. And when are they going to fit in anything else? Yeah. And then, you know, maybe there's some other things too that, you know, maybe men are more brave in, when you say we're going to do a study involving muscle biopsies. Maybe <laughs> men are just take more risks so there's probably a whole combination of reasons why we've been so neglectful with female athletes and so what we're trying to do now is to um, redress that in two ways one is by trying to help people do better research try and tackle what those complexities are and that's in combination with a whole lot of other people who are terrific in this area so Kirstie Elliott-Sale, um, Kate Ackerman, um, there's plenty of people that, Anthony Hackney, there's plenty of people that do this work as, as, as experts. So we're trying to get them to help us to say, how would we improve our skill set? What sort of resources would make it easier for someone to do research to tackle this complexity? So if we can help get 
other people better tooled up to do it as well as ourselves and then if we can actually do some research and get some sort of um, publicity about it to show actually it's great to do work with females then maybe what we can do is try and help to redress that imbalance. Yeah, it's great to see, obviously, professional sport, more and more female sports, the ability to, just as you said before, actually now make a full-time living at it. Um, and when we think about elite female sport, I'm just wondering, I'm curious, what are some of the questions that you'd like to see answered or some of the things that are top of mind for you when you think about female performance or female athletes? Yeah, so there's a little bit of sort of um, scienceiness around this whole idea that Females should eat or train differently. Everything's different. different. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> a different yeah, they should do it differently from men, but they should also do it differently across the menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a little bit of some publicity about these um, apps and things where you can track. see where you are and you, yeah, track it, but also then know that this phase you should be doing this and this phase you should never do that. And look, it sounds all nice, but there's really no evidence at this point to be so black and white about it. It is likely that some females do have differences across their menstrual phase when they're better feeling about this or they're more able to do that, mm -hmm. but it's probably individual. And so I think trying to um, tell people right now that they should be doing completely different things just mm -hmm. based on their menstrual cycle, it's a bit like horoscopes. It's, yeah. a bit, you know, it's a bit like astrology. There's a fair bit of... Um, monkey business going on if you, get, if you give a general <laughs> idea then someone's going to relate to it somehow and yeah, yeah. Like a yeah. so yeah so i mean i'd like to see some rigor put into the science around looking at that and you know trying to just um help people feel confident that the current sports nutrition guidelines do address females like at the moment you could, if we and we have been doing audits to say all right, well, here's some things that we think we've got very good information to say this is an evidence-based guideline. Go back and have a look and see what studies support that and you'll find most of them in males. So it would be good to go back and do it with females just so that we can be confident that there's nothing about females that needs to have that it's guideline yeah. tweaked. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that there's females should say, oh, I can't do anything because there's no information. I think the current guidelines are a good starting point but whether we need to tweak it for, for females differently is the question that we could be addressing. So for practitioners listening in, there might be a bit more bandwidth then with some of these recommendations, depending on the female athlete in front of you. Well, Sounds yeah, like... yeah. I think every, every athlete will have some personalization required around sure. guidelines, but you know, whether or not it needs to be systematically personalized in a certain way because someone's female versus male or because it's the luteal phase of their menstrual cycle versus follicular, these are the things that we need better information to inform. Mm -hmm. Tremendous. Well, you know, if we circle all the way back to a couple of the topics at the start, one of them I'd like to touch on here as we wrap up is the, the tech and the analyzing and the gathering of data. You know, we see this a lot with, with teams now in college and pro sport, and we're collecting everything under the sun. And of course, we're seeing some research showing that the more we assess or collect, let's say things like sleep, then the, the enjoyment of that thing becomes less and less. And so for you, you know, where's this middle ground of, of you know, collecting all this data? How are we meant to be thinking this through? Because it seems like Although we're coming out the other side of this sort of top of the bell curve, there's a moment yeah. there where we're collecting everything under the sun just because we could. 
Yeah, look, that's a great question. And, you know, I think there's been this explosion in ability to measure things. And the two problems that we've got with just taking that on without questioning it, first of all is, are we measuring accurately what we think we are? Because mm -hmm. in many cases, some of the some of the tech that we have that does the measurement, you know, there's such an error involved in it that we're getting information that's really not accurate. But then the second thing is, what does it mean? And, you know, it's so quick to see these new things come out, you know, whether it's continuous glucose monitors or sleep or heart rate variability monitors. And some of that information could be gold, but when you've mm -hmm. got bucket loads of it coming at you as fast as you know you can uh, well you can't absorb it because it's coming at you too fast it's trying to pick out the quality information that's that's important and I think also we've got to think about not just interpreting it but when's it important for the athlete to hear it because if you're wearing a sleep monitor and you're in the middle of the Tour de France or you're in the middle of Wimbledon and your sleep monitor tells you when you get up for the morning of the final or the last stage that you had a crap night's sleep. Right. Does an athlete really need to hear that? No. You want the athlete feeling that this is the biggest day of their life and they're completely ready to um, put their best on the line. So there's times when you might say, look, this would be good to be monitoring now to learn patterns about ourselves and to be able to tweak things. But at other times, that information is not helpful and we've got to it's not take actionable, a, I guess, yeah. either at some of those stages, yeah. right? Like, nothing you can that's, do about it. <laughs> nothing, that's right. Nothing you can do about it. So, we've got to learn how to better measure, how to better interpret, and how to better know when's the right time for that information to be shared with the athlete. Tremendous. And uh, Louise, for practitioners starting out, or even for an experienced practitioner for that matter, you know, maybe the advice is the same, but what piece of advice would you give? you know, practitioner who's starting out working with athletes, or again, even that more experienced practitioner who's, who's, who's well into their career? Oh, so many things. I think, I, I think valuing the experience and the privilege to be able to work with athletes and coaches, particularly, you know, when it gets to that one-on-one -on -one ability to get to really know them, that's such a privilege. And that never, never underestimate that it's a two-way learning process. You're going to learn as much from them as they're going to learn from, from you. Mm -hmm. So be, be open to those experiences. And I think the other thing is that if, if you look back on your career, it all makes sense as if it was all joined up in a way and it was logical and you got to where you got to because you planned it and it was just completely streamlined. But the reality... And Despite the storm. Case, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my case is completely, uh, you know, the opposite. Everything, almost everything that I've done has been an accident or serendipitous. And, you know, I've had such a blast at all the things that I've been able to do. Some of it's been harrowing. Some of it's been, you know, it's been disappointing. There's been lots of times, I think when you work in sport, you know, you, you can't it's escape the reality, the fact right? that it's, yeah, the brutal nature of sport is something you've got to have a tough skin to be able to cope with. But, you know, the reality is that everything will contribute to something. You know, sometimes you think, oh, it's not happening fast enough, or I haven't got that perfect job, and I have to go and do something else to make money. But everything you do is a learning experience. And when you get to the end of your life and you can sort of look back and appreciate that um, maybe if you had that insight earlier on you wouldn't have felt so stressed or you know miserable about things you just yeah. got to be open to open to all the opportunities and think wow this is gonna this is gonna make some difference fantastic advice really appreciate you 
carving out some time, Louise. I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody on the podcast knows where to find you, but I'll ask anyway, in terms of getting a hold of you, you know, social media, uh, you know, connecting with your research, where are the best places? Uh, look, I do go on Twitter. I have a love-hate relationship with it, so that's the best place to, <laughs> yeah. uh, to find me. Um, that's probably the best one. I, I um, Okay. If I'm going to concentrate on one thing that's there, but look at publications. We try and um, do most of our research now with open access publications so that we can get it to as many people as possible. And I also love being able to do these kind of um, interactions where I get to talk to people on, you know, you ask great questions that you don't get a chance sometimes to write into your paper. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you for the um, the um, stimulating conversation and the push, pushy me to think about some things that um, I mightn't have thought of. Well, listen, I, I appreciate the time. We'll definitely include the links to your papers. And I have to say, one of the greatest sporting experiences in my life was going to see, and I know it's not your team, so I apologize, but the Sydney Swans at the stadium there in Sydney and just the size of the pitch, you know, blew me away in terms of what the athletes were having to do over that time and in that amount of space with, with something else. Well, I just, yeah, I love footy, as we call it. So you can you can say that you're a footy devotee now. And, there you go. Um, yeah, love it. Fantastic. Well, listen, appreciate the time again, please. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. To watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help for the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.